0: So last week, David Frey's preached. David and I were on staff together in Fort Worth for uh, several years. And at one point, there was this young man who came to church named Eddie. And I sat next to his mother the first time they ever came to church. And I would find out later that his mother uh, had... She was an adult escort... For many years, Eddie was born into a very difficult situation. Um, he would later describe it as a uh, crack house, I think is the right phrase. But anyway, so this, this was her moment that she wanted to give her family something better. But she didn't know how other people came to church or acted in church. And Eddie certainly didn't. He was just a teenager, 16 years old. So I sat next to her at the first time she ever comes to church. And um, then Eddie comes and sits on the other side of me. He had uh, been out in the foyer, and then he comes and sees his mom, and so he sits next to her, me, and then him. And it was right during communion, and um, he says during the prayer for communion, very loudly, because he wasn't, you know, he didn't know how to how other church people acted. He said really loudly, "Mom, give me your phone." And she was like, spit that dip out. This is in the church service. Now, I'm from Arkansas. (laughs) It is not the first time I've heard the spit that dip out in church. (laughs) But it was the first time during a communion prayer I heard it. So uh, it was, you know, give me me that phone. Spit that dip out. Give me that phone. Spit that dip out. And I'm just kind of watching back and forth who's going to win this argument. Well, finally, Eddie did. He was like, give me the phone. And so she's like, fine reaches into her blouse, and she pulls out her phone, and she hands it to me to hand to Eddie. (laughs) And I was like, that's warm. (laughs) So, but I will tell you, it is the most meaningful communion I've ever been a part of, for reasons I will tell you about later. I I recently turned 40, much more recently, 42, and that means... (laughs) I have been at church thousands of times. 2,184 times I have participated in communion. And I've seen us practice this one thing every Sunday without fail, although a couple of times in the last month I failed, um, but a couple of elders came up and said, we ain't changing that. So, But we do this every Sunday. We gather around a table, and uh, you, you may notice... There is a table here today. And and by the way, I grew up with a table. And I know um, the history of this church and and a lot of churches did the same thing. And I would have made those exact same decisions. But I grew up with a church that had a table. And on it, there was a table that said, what? Look at us. Like we, if you're a guest, we didn't even choreograph that. Do this in remembrance of me. But the thing is, we probably had a, because that's something Jesus said, we probably had a different idea than Jesus about what he meant by that. And since this is a, a series called Preaching What We Practice, where we talk about the things that we do every week, and since we have um, gone through a pandemic, and, and the way that we practice communion had to change, um, just like it did, by the way, during the Spanish flu. That's when people started passing out the um, trays with the... They're not shot glasses, but you know what I'm talking about. Like little bitty cups. Um, I, I don't want us to lose what it is that we're doing when we do communion. When we receive communion. So I want us to have a table up here. As a way of remembering what it is we're remembering. Because this is the thing Jesus gave us. A table to give us each other. And, and I know... it. We, we need to have the, the packages. I know we need to do that, but I want you to see. I want us to start having a loaf and a cup so you can start seeing what it is other Christians throughout history and around the world do. Because, do you know, the majority of Christians around the world do this every Sunday? We're, we're part of a fellowship that has done this for every Sunday since we began... And the reason was because we wanted to be like the early Christians, but I want to know why the early Christians did this, at least every Sunday, because there's a good reason why they did that. But first, I want to tell you a story. uh, A few decades after Jesus had raised from the dead, one of the early Christians was this guy named Ignatius. He was a church leader in South Asia. Um, He probably knew some of the twelve apostles. He definitely knew the apostle John. And Ignatius was leading several different communities of Christians. And he had gotten sideways with Rome. And so Rome was going to kill him. They had arrested him. They were taking him to Rome. He was going to be fed to wild animals and killed a very violent death. But on his way, on his trip to Rome to die, he was not concerned about the upcoming death he was facing. But he was concerned about the life of the churches he was a steward of. And he wrote them a letter against the first heresy that christians actually faced it was a heresy of gnosticism which is this idea that jesus didn't really come in the flesh because that's icky and you know jesus god wouldn't have done that he wouldn't have put on human flesh um and you know had to go to the bathroom and those kind of things so god surely couldn't do that and that was the first heresy And it had all kinds of implications specifically for communion. So as he's on his way to die, Ignatius writes this letter to the church. And here's one of the things he said. The Gnostics care nothing about love. They have no concern for widows or orphans, for the oppressed, for those in prison or released, for the hungry or the thirsty. They hold aloof from the Eucharist, which is what this is. That's just a Greek word that means thanksgiving or giving thanks because that's actually the word that Jesus uses for it. And from the services of prayer. Because they refuse to admit that the Eucharist communion is the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, which suffered for our sins and which in His goodness the Father raised from the dead. So, on His way to die, His greatest concern isn't about His death, but He wants to make sure you know what you're doing when you receive communion. Why? Well, for the first 1,600 years of Christianity, the biggest moment in church was not the sermon or the singing. Those are great things. But the biggest moment in church, and still to this day, even if we're not aware of it, and mostly we're not aware of it, is this. Because this is when you actually get the presence of the Lord. There's something to this that defies words. Words don't capture this. And when we talk about it, we talk about it like symbols. And Yes, it is a symbol. But a symbol always means it's more than something, not less. Right? I mean, think about like a flag. We wouldn't say a flag is just symbolic. What we mean is a flag stands for something more than that. What is it that it stands for? And is it just a symbol? Or is it more than a symbol? The problem that... Christians had, and the reason you think what you think when it comes to communion is because of this problem. Six hundred years ago, the biggest problem that um, churches had across the world was that people weren't swallowing their communion for real. They were, they wouldn't. They would go and they would, they would. The priest would pray over the bread and the cup, and then they would take it and they would put it in their mouth, and then they would sneak it home, and they would. Put it on their garden to make it grow better. Or they would feed it to their sick pig to help it get better. In fact, they even had this problem. Witches would sneak into church... And they would steal some of the communion after it had been prayed for and they would go home and use it for their potions. But because they didn't understand Latin, what would happen was the priest would hold up the loaf and say, in Latin, this is the body or hoccus corpus. And the witches didn't understand what that meant and so they would come home and use the bread and they would say, Hocus Pocus. Which is where that comes from. Um... 500 years ago, there was no place that was secular. Secular is just a Latin word that means where God is not. and Or this world, really focused on this world. There's no place like that. And by the way, aren't, aren't you glad that it's not the same world? Because here's what that would feel like. It would feel like you'd be on an airplane and your pilot would come across and be like, uh, Ladies and gentlemen, we're not going to fly today because there's demons in the sky. Or you're... Doctor would say, hey, we can't operate. We're just worried the angels in your blood aren't cooperating. I mean, granted, it's a different world. But what happened was, the reason people were using communion and not taking communion, because they were worried that if they received communion unworthily, that they would be struck down and dead and killed. And um, so, for example, if you were to just... Time warp back into 15th century Scotland and you were to say something like man my favorite part of church is when we do communion they would look at you like you were nuts they would look at you like you would look at a neighbor who said I'm getting my appendix out this week and I'm so excited I just love it when the doctor cuts me open and roots around in there and takes out stuff and puts other stuff in there like, that's a weird person, right? That's what they would think of you. Because they knew something was happening at communion. And they didn't take it for granted. Now, that's the world that they lived in. People would sneak communion away. In fact, you maybe, maybe it was in the Godfather movies or something. You saw their solution to that was making people stick out their tongues. Because, you know... Once we have a good idea, we stick with it. That's still happening in some places. Now, that whole way of thinking about reality is kind of foreign to us, except, you know when Tom Brady won his last Super Bowl, his Super Bowl jersey got stolen, and all of a sudden, people were up in arms. Why? It's just a piece of fabric. Well, no, it's more than that. Tom Brady was wearing this while he won the Super Bowl. Or what about this? Did you know psychologists, this is a real experiment you can look up. Psychologists have done this on hundreds of people where they'll get them in a room and they'll show them a sweater. And they say, this actually, we just discovered this. It's a recent discovery. It was Adolf Hitler's sweater. In fact, Adolf Hitler actually wore this. Would you like to try this sweater on? And people, to a person, be like, no, no, thank you, I don't want to touch that. And they'll get visibly uncomfortable with the sweater, which raises the conclusion, psychologists are weird people, right? <laughs> but what are, they saying? what are they discovering? That there's something that's more than just that sweater, right? That, It's why this coin around my neck that was minted by Pontius Pilate from the first century, when I pray, sometimes I touch that coin, and it doesn't just feel like I'm touching a coin, it feels like I'm bumping into another reality. But we've still changed a lot over the last few hundred years, and mostly because of what is known as the Enlightenment, and I want to show you the end point of the Enlightenment. There is a famous atheist, a guy named Sam Harris, who after 9-11 wrote the book, The End of Faith, and it was on the New York Times bestselling list for uh, weeks, dozens of weeks. And Sam Harris talks about communion like this. He says, Jesus Christ, who as it turns out, was born of a virgin, cheated death, and rose bodily into the heavens, can now be eaten in the form of a cracker. Now... I did some research on Sam Harris. couple of things. One, his mother was a secular Jew who also, this is for real, was the creator of the Golden Girls. So, what a <laughs> gift. Um, and his father was a non-practicing Quaker. Now, Sam Harris did not grow up in a religious home, but he grew up with parents who had been religious. But here's what I want you to know. Sam Harris did not get this view of communion from his mother. He got it from his dad. Because for 500 years, Protestants argued with Catholics over communion. And by the way, I'm a Protestant. I would imagine a lot of you are. Most of you are Protestants. But at the heart of the argument between Protestants and Catholics was honestly this. It was, this isn't what we grew up thinking it was. They are like, listen... No one's going to die from taking communion the wrong way. Yeah, that's in there. Paul talks about that. But it's bread and it's juice. And honestly, what happened was 300 years ago, 400 years ago, we started realizing there were certain things that were really helpful in learning about the kind of world we were in. We know it today as the scientific method. And it's great. Scientific method's great for medicine and, and creating indoor plumbing and all kinds of great stuff. But... It can't really describe everything. And all of a sudden, a few hundred years ago, we started getting really uncomfortable with not being, with with mystery, with not being able to understand everything that's happening. And and so the focus for Protestants and Catholics began to be, well, well, how does God do anything? Or does God do anything in communion and so you've got the catholics and the orthodox and the lutheran on one side saying listen this really is the presence of jesus this is the body and blood of jesus and you've got the rest of the protestants on the other saying, like no it's not so when sam harris says that mocking comment about jesus who raised bodily from the dead can now be eaten in the form of a cracker he's not saying anything new like that's old protestant propaganda for 200 years ago voltaire said that He mocked believers for thinking that Jesus could be eaten as a pastry. He's not saying anything new. So why do I tell you this? Because there is a reason on the night before Jesus died, He did not give us sermon notes. On the night before Jesus died, He did not give us an order of worship or how many times to pray or whatever. Instead, He gave us a meal. And if you make this, if we make this a purely intellectual thing, the end point is not Jesus. It is Sam Harris. So I can't get into much more of this now, but the reason the world is so disenchanted today, this is ground zero for it. We were trying to, Protestants were trying to get rid of all the idols, including the idols in the church, which is not a bad thing. But what happened was a hostility towards anything mysterious. And it started here. The pre-modern world grew up thinking in terms of magic. Right? So we use this for hocus-pocus. You and I grew up thinking in terms of memory. But neither one of those capture what communion is and why Jesus gave it to us. So these are the words of our Lord. In John chapter 6, Jesus has multiplied the loaves and the fishes. He has fed thousands of people with just a few loaves and a few fishes. And then afterwards, He says this, starting in verse 51... I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This is the reason why Christians have referred to communion as medicine of immortality. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of this world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, How can this man give his flesh to eat? And Jesus said to them, very truly, I unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Whoever eats, uh, remains in me, which is a big thing in the Gospel of John. Well, how do you do that, Jesus? It's this. This is how you remain in me and I remain in you. Just as the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. And the one who feeds on me will live because of me. Okay, this is one of the most difficult things Jesus says. And if it's difficult for you, it was way worse for the people who first heard it. Eat your flesh, drink your blood. These are Jewish people. They have a real problem with drinking blood. That's, it. That's not kosher. It's their Levitical commands against it. And then he says it. And here's what's crazy, church. I think he meant it. We are, in some mysterious way, every week, eating the body and blood of Jesus. Okay, I don't know how to explain this, but here's my best shot at it. So every time I sit down to write a sermon, almost every single time, it feels like something comes from outside of me. Like, I'm not doing this alone. And I'm not just doing it for me. And by the way, I'm not trying to blame God for all the mistakes that I've made. Because I know some of y'all are like, listen, we've heard the sermon." But I, I, I promise you, it's, it's like this thing that comes from outside of me. And I think it's the mysterious work of God. And the best way I know how to describe this is that the same thing that happens with that happens here. And you're not going to see it, and you can't describe it, but something happens where it's not just what it was before. It's somehow more. Martin Luther, when people tried to back him into a corner, what do you mean? What do you mean by that? He's like, I can't describe it. I can't define it. But it's a mystery. Does it remind us? Yes. Does it mysteriously bring the presence of Jesus? Yes. And I can't describe it, but I want you, if you're going to have to describe it, to have to at least lean on stuff like God. The activity of God. Because what happens when we forget, this is more than just a, 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 a memorial, is that we try to make it this kind of private thing where it puts all the pressure on us to get you know, get in the right frame of mind, which is not a bad thing, to remember the crucifixion, which is not a bad thing, but it's not the only thing that's happening here. Here's how Paul says it. Uh, he wrote to a church that he planted in Corinth just two decades after Jesus raised from the dead. He says, is not the cup of thanksgiving, which by the way is the word Eucharist, it's the Greek word Eucharist, um, is not the cup of Eucharist for which we give Eucharist, Give thanks, a participation in the blood of Christ. He's asking a question. What's our answer? Is it not a participation? And is it not the bread that we break, a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body. For we all share the one loaf. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, Eucharist, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant, a new promise, a promise I am making to you and to your brothers and sisters, a promise that I am renewing every week. Whenever you drink this, in remembrance of me, for when you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Now, when Paul says, what I received, I passed on to you, that on the night Jesus was handed over, those are all the same words. It's all the same word. I received, I passed off, Jesus was passed off. Jesus was handed over. Jesus in this moment is giving Himself. Historically, to the Romans. Theologically, to the church. And because of that, the word give thanks is translated Eucharist. You give thanks for something you did not initiate. You give thanks because this isn't about you. It's for you, but it's not from you. You give thanks You don't give thanks for something you did. You give thanks for something you were given. And that's what every week we do. We are reminded. We are humbled. We are reminded that this thing did not start with us. It did not initiate with us. And when Jesus says, uh, do this in remembrance of me, that word is anamimesis. Let me hear you say anamimesis. Okay, it's the Greek word for memory, but... I, Dr. David Smith actually told me this after first service. Do you know that there is a form of medicine that is that kind of It's that word, anamnesis. you know what it is? Booster shots. Cuz it reminds your body of what your that what your medi- your body already knows. It re it renews that in your body. So Jesus is present Whenever there's broken bread and poured out wine. So when we miss the mystery of this, table worship, not worshipping a table, but worshipping God through the table, is always kind of thought of something I do. like it's some kind of intellectual exercise. But the word for memory there, it, it's better translated "recalled" as in "to bring back, to recall. So in the Protestant tradition, we thought a lot about just you know thinking about it. But Jesus isn't just saying, close your eyes and remember this really happened. Instead, He tells us to eat something. Right? Eating is not just intellectual. It's something you do with your body the same way He did with His body. This, it reminds us that when we gather at a table, the kind of ministry Jesus did around tables all the time, how He invited everyone... But those tables, while anyone was invited, they changed you. They would change who you were. And and when Jesus says, do this in remembrance, it's important to remember what Jesus meant by remember. Jesus was a Jew, and the Jewish understanding of, of remembering was different. In the Jewish world, it was not a mental activity. It was not just about nostalgia for the past. It was about asking God to remember His people and finish what He started. It was the not merely mental recollection of past events. It means recalling a past event so the power of that event might enter the present. And you know how you already knew this? Because Jesus is celebrating what when He gives us this meal? Passover. Something Jews have been celebrating for thousands of years. And He is celebrating Passover, this historical thing that actually happened, but He's calling it in the present, and He's saying, this is is happening now. In fact, this is going to happen tonight. He says, this is my body. It's broken for you. And this is the new covenant. Now, I don't know how it works, but I do want us to require an explanation that says God is involved. So, the real reason that this has been something less than what I think God gave us among Protestants among specific groups of Protestants is because a few hundred years ago, all of a sudden we started thinking the best way to understand all of the world was through science, which again, has done a lot of great things. And so we we said, listen, you know, if you you pray for this bread and then you put it under a microscope, it's still going to look like bread. So come on, let's be honest about this. And I will grant you, that's true. If you prayed for this after we consecrated it, it's still going to look like bread. If you'll grant me that this is true. On the day that Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fishes, when he was feeding the 5,000, if you were to take that bread and put it under a microscope, it would have still looked like bread. But something happened More than just what you saw. And the reason this is important. Is because for the last couple hundred years. We have stopped drinking Jesus' blood. And started drinking enlightenment's Kool-Aid. And it is ground zero. For why it's harder and harder. To believe in God. Even though God gives us himself. Every week. Human beings were not made. To think of God as a math problem. To be solved. We were made to have regular encounters. With the living God. And a lot of it has to do with how we pay attention. So there's this pastor I like named Dan Kimball who's in California. First generation Christian. Didn't grow up church, anything like that. But when he was in college, he was really interested in Christianity. And on a Sunday morning, he was walking around downtown LA. And he, saw, he and his friend saw this Episcopal church. And so he was like, hey, let's go check it out. So they stumbled in. They'd never been to church in their life. They stumbled in and um, they sit down. They sit down next to this senior saint and um, they're doing communion. They're passing around the Eucharist stuff. And the person on their pew hands Dan the communion cup and says, this is the body of Christ, uh, the blood of Christ shed for you. Well, Dan, you know, he does what that person does. He takes a drink and then he hands it to his friend, but he doesn't say anything. And so now his friend has it, and they've got somebody to their left, and he his friend saw the person hand it to Dan, said something to Dan, but Dan didn't say something to him. So now he's got to hand it off to his left. He knows he's supposed to say something, but he doesn't know what he's supposed to say. So he takes the cup and he goes, Here it is. The cup of wonder. <laughs> Which I think is a pretty good description of what it is we're doing when we receive communion. I like the way C.S. Lewis says this. You and I have the need of strongest of the strongest spell that can. Be, you and I have need of the strongest spell that can be found to wake us from the evil enchantment of worldliness. Here's what he's saying: the deepest magic that works on your heart is that there is no magic. That there is nothing beside what you can see, beside what you can put in a test tube. It's a pretty brand new way of thinking about the world and it's not leading to human health flourishing or mental health. And every week, God gives us this, not as magic, but as a miracle. As the presence of God that is unexplainable and yet real. And over time, I've seen this. This, the medicine of immortality, changes you. It changes us. And that brings me back to Eddie. His life, his mother, who has recently passed away and gone on to be with the Lord, wanted him... To have a better life than she had and she didn't know what to do but she thought church might be a place to start and i can tell you that church there was a lot of challenges we kicked eddie out on multiple occasions because of um well i can't tell you but it was bad but we always made sure he knew he was welcome we always made sure he had people who was, were loving on him, caring on him, and any time he would be willing to not, you know, yell that word in the middle of church, then he could come back. So he did, over and over and over again. And just two or three weeks ago, Eddie texted David, who was the student minister, his student minister, this. He texted, thank you for affording me the opportunity to look up to you not only as a friend and as a father figure, but also as a man I want to be. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to find out that I can be loved for who I am and not what I offer. Thank you for showing me that I don't have to be another statistic and I don't have to live with the cards that I was dealt. Thank you for affording me the opportunity to leave the reality I was forced into and showing me love without fault. I owe you everything that I am. I love you, and from the bottom of my heart, thank you for changing my life. You gave me the chance to be the father, husband, and friend I always wished I had. Thank you. Which is what this table is called. (laughs) So, as we receive communion this week, and in future weeks, I want you to do this. Because it's weird being in the, you know, the packet, and it depends on where you sat, what kind of packet you got, if it was a good kind or the kind that my eight-year-old says, this is straight up styrofoam. But take out the bread and hold it. And I want you to imagine that Jesus meant what he said. And if that's true, then as you receive communion today, you're not just eating a cracker. You're holding Jesus. So I want us to close our eyes and just imagine that we really are at a table with Jesus. Just remember and remember, just because you imagine something doesn't mean it's not real. So let's close our eyes and I want you to imagine that we got invited to Zacchaeus' house, the short little man who's the tax collector who's cheated. Lots of people. But he's searching for more. And he hears that Jesus really does accept anybody where they're at. And so he goes looking for him. and Jesus sees him. And Jesus invites himself to this table. And we get to tag along. And so we're listening as Jesus is at the center of the table laughing and sharing stories. And then all of a sudden Zacchaeus stands up and realizes he's been missing out on so much and he promises that all the people he's cheated, he's going to give back four times what he's stolen. And then Jesus with a big smile on his face says, today salvation has come to this house. And then Jesus says, let's bless this meal. And we all hold hands around the table. And as you're holding your communion, you realize you're holding Jesus' hand. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this bread and for this cup. Thank you for your life that you poured out, that you allowed yourself to be handed over so you could be handed over to us. God, as we enter into this mystery, that is the body and blood that you gave us, that is your medicine of immortality, that is your new covenant of you making promises that you will never break. This morning as we receive this body and blood, would you help it change us, assure us? For those of us who are going through a hard time, would, you, would your presence give us peace? For those of us in a season of Zacchaeus where we're, we realize we're choosing against joy, would your presence give us conviction and courage to choose what you're calling us to? God, we receive this as your presence that it is. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The body of Christ, broken for you. blood of Christ shed for you.